Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we're joined by one of my favorite guests, the one that so many of my friends so look forward to because he is what I called him on the very first time I interviewed, the fire hydrant or the hydrant, because he's a constant flow of information. Just he has a magical memory that exceeds virtually anyone I've ever met. And he has common sense, which is a rare commodity, of course. And he puts it all together in such a beautiful way. He has really, in, in many ways, taken Ray Pete's appro approach of the, of the science to the next level. And just so value his insights. So I'm really, really looking forward to this discussion. So thank you and wel welcome. And thank you for thank joining you. us. Thank you for inviting me. All again. right. So, so many things we can talk about. Uh, CO2 is going to be one of them today. But I wanted to, before we start there, I wanted to delve into some of the hormones uh, because they're useful. Now, I think if you're, my understanding, and you can give me feedback on this, that if you're optimally healthy, you don't need them. You don't need them because yep. your body is supposed to make them. The problem is almost everyone needs them because very, very few people, including me, are optimally healthy. And I, I still take them. I take four of them. And I am going to tell you the four I take in what I believe is the rank order of importance. Uh, progesterone, number one, uh, virtually everyone needs it. Every adult needs benefits from this. Not, not everyone, but, and, and, and not taken continuously because if you're a menstruating woman, you've got to take it at a very specific time of your cycle. Otherwise, you'll mess up your cycle. Number two, thyroid hormone, typically T3. Uh, then DHEA and then pregnenolone. So you can comment on those and what I just said, and then we'll, t we'll talk about the specifics of each one, because I think it's important to understand this because almost everyone who is like in the journey to improve their health is going to benefit from these as a crutch to help them along the yep. journey. It is not the magic bullet. None of these are magic bullets and they tend not to work well if you aren't biologically optimized following the principles that we've been talking about. Yep. So if you look at a healthy person, uh, specifically people between, let's say, around the age of 12, which is what mm -hmm. the actuarial tables tell you, it's the lowest mortality rate. Oh, I did rate. not know that. That's um, a nice pro. Yeah, between 11 and 12. That's basically when you're, when you're at your mm. peak, uh, right before puberty. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and if you look at the thyroid function and, and the production of hormones that, that happens at this age, basically you, you'll see that both genders produce about the same amounts of pregnenolone and progesterone. Uh, not, not so much testosterone for males or estrogen for females because puberty hasn't started yet. So it's really basically very similar hormonal profile. Uh, and if you look at the thyroid levels, you'll see that they're probably the highest they'll ever be throughout their lifetime. Um, and that happens to be uh, actually the, uh, you know, the, the point in life we have the lowest mortality. It's not a coincidence. And then when, when puberty strikes, basically you have the adrenal activity. It's really what, what uh, I think the puberty, the old name for that used to be adrenarchy. Um, which kind of tells you that it's the adrenal activity that's driving this process. And really, the, the once puberty hits, basically, you start producing some of the gonadal hormones, which is mostly testosterone for males and more progesterone for females, depending on the cycle. Um, and that's when reproductive age starts. And multiple studies have shown that the later puberty starts, uh, the longer the lifespan, mm -hmm. 
um, of both sexes. And the longer the health span, um, which is something that medicine has been trying to achieve for a very long time. Um, and, and basically, and conversely, the earlier the puberty starts, the shorter the lifespan and the sicker, um, you know, the individuals from both genders uh, would be throughout their lifetime. Um, and, and if you look at the way the hormonal profile changes, well, let's say after puberty starts and until, let's say, the, the late 20s, mm-hmm. um, these people are remarkably resilient to stress. Um, in fact, stress o- often seems stimulating for them. And this seems to change, I would say, drastically after they hit 30 and especially after 35. Mm-hmm. It's really basically a very steep decline. And if you look at the, the way the hormonal profile changes, you'll see that whenever these people, young, healthy people are exposed to stress, there is a, there is a spike in cortisol release. But also followed closely following it is there's basically a spike of pregnenolone and DHA release for males, and there's a pregnenolone progesterone and DHA release for females. Um, and that sort of like delayed release of these of these secondary hormones seems to drop off a cliff after the, the age of about 35. In fact, they change the ranges for pregnenolone, progesterone, and DHEA, and even testosterone. Uh, they change the range depending on what age group you fall into, but they don't change the range for cortisol. Um, so throughout your lifetime, unless you're critically ill, um, in, in which case cortisol drops, or you have Addison disease, which is uh, you know full-on adrenal failure, President Kennedy mm-hmm. actually had that, uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, basically, uh, you, you, your cortisol levels you know do not decline; they're, they're always there, and, and that's what really keeps mm-hmm. you alive. Because if you actually if you have if you have adrenal failure, unless you take cortisone shots, you will die from from hypoglycemia or, or uh, you know that's, other. That's Addison's disease. That's... Yeah, exactly. Addison's disease. So, so it's lethal. So cortisol is there. It's really like a life-saving hormone. And its primary purpose seems to be not so much inflammation. And we found more recently about some paradoxical effects. that Actually, it's pro-inflammatory. But its primary purpose is to keep blood sugar from dropping too low because your brain runs predominantly on glucose. Um, so, so basically, after the age of 35, you're having cortisol stays the same. We know it's a catabolic hormone. It can shred your muscles, soft tissue, bone, you name it. There's no organ that is immune to the effects of cortisol. Uh, there is only one that is somewhat resilient, and it's the heart. And it turns out that the reason the heart is so resilient in both genders is because in males, the heart contains a very large amount of testosterone, and in females, it contains very large amounts of progesterone. Both of these happen to be glucocorticoid antagonists. So they're protecting this vital muscle, which is the last thing you want, you want to lose. And, it, and it, that is the last thing you do lose. Uh, but all the other tissues can be shredded, and they're considered basically you know, non, non-essential. So after the age of 35, you have a, a stable supply of a catabolic hormone and then a rapidly declining supply of pregnenolone, pregnenolone, progesterone, and DHEA, all three of which actually have anti-glucocorticoid effect. Uh, I think the, the one that's, that's been the most studied lately has been um, DHEA, dehydroepiandrosterone. And there is one that has been sold as kind of like the, the better DHEA, they call it. It's not really. It's called the 7-keto DHEA. Mm-hmm. Um, and several companies did studies showing that they say, oh, DHEA is a known anti-glucocorticoid, promotes immune system activity, has anti-aging effects, um, helps helps pre- uh, prevent muscle loss, sarcopenia, which happens with age, right? But unlike regular DHEA, the 7-keto DHEA does not metabolize into dangerous, potentially dangerous steroids downstream. So I think what they mean is, you know, too much androgens for males or estrogen for aromatase, females. Aromatase. Um, yeah, exactly. It doesn't aromatase, but but they're also worried about the androgens in males because, as yeah. we know, every urologist will tell you, oh, you don't want yeah. too high androgens. It's going to cause problems it's, with your prostate. Yeah, right? no, that's just why you don't want to go out in the sun because it's going to kill you from 
yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, have you seen that? Uh, same uh, well, a study came out two years ago saying that avoiding the sun is worse than smoking yeah, a pack of cigarettes so a day. Confused. It's just not even funny. <laughs> Yeah. So, so basically, we get into when we're healthy and have the lowest chance of dying. We have we do have a robust production oh, wait, of cortisol. Wait, wait, we have a robust production of three. You mentioned the concern of this aromatization and conversion to yep. estrogen, which is really, really t toxic. It, I, I believe estrogen and linoleic acid are the two primary causes of cancer. So, but the mm -hmm. progesterone, if you're taking it, which is why it's number one of the reasons it's number one, is that it is anti-estrogenic. It actually blocks yes. aromatase activity. So you don't have to worry mm -hmm. about the DHA converting to estrogenic substances or prolactin because pro progesterone is going to like block that. And even if there is conversion, progesterone is actually an antagonist at the actual estrogen yeah, receptors. Yeah, you can't get much better. So you, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, progesterone has some of those effects. It's a milder aromatase inhibitor. In other words, weaker than progesterone. But it seems to be very good at preventing the uptake of estrogen into the cell. Um, and it's very good at that. So in other words, if estrogen is not able to get into the cell, presumably you're not going to get any estrogenic effects. But still, the best thing you can do is inhibit aromatase and block estrogen in the receptor. And for that, progesterone is mm -hmm. king. Um, so when we're young, basically, before puberty uh, hits and before nature sends a signal of basically saying reproduce and die, uh, we have high production of T3. We have a robust production of cortisol, but also a robust production of the anti-cortisol steroids. Um, and after the age of 35, we seem to be basically gradually, we have a gradual decline of thyroid function, and we have a more more or less rapid decline of the anti, of the synthesis and release of the anti-cortisol hormones, some of which also happen to be anti-estrogenic. Uh, but, and since every cell in the body expresses the enzyme aromatase, we're getting into a, a state of not only relative glucocorticoid excess, but also a state of relative mm -hmm. estrogen excess. Now, the state of glucocorticoid excess is not very well known. Um, it's easily measurable, though, by the, uh, by the ratio of cortisol to DHEA. Or you can do cortisol progesterone or cortisol pregnenolone. But cortisol to DHEA is like a, there's a quite a few studies on that and demonstrate that the cortisol to DHEA ratio or the cortisol to DHEA sulfate ratio is the best predictor we have, not only for, for future, for how long you're going to live, but of any disease that you're going to develop throughout your lifetime. Um, you know, we think of DHA as an immune booster. So we say, okay, yeah, maybe have, if you have decent DHA levels, you're not going to get, you know, COVID-19 or some other infectious disease. But it turns out that the immune system is very important for, for a bunch of different diseases, including cancer. Uh, one of the one of the best uh, uh, drugs uh, recently on the market for cancer are actually immune boosters. The drug the drug Obdivo, which was developed, I think, to treat uh, secondary metastasis for melanoma. It's an immune booster, and recently they found out that it works for many other cancers: Bre uh, metastatic breast cancer, metastatic lung cancer, uh, secondary uh, metastasis from from liver cancer, especially in the bones. So it looks like immune system is actually very important for for not just infectious disease, but many other diseases, especially cancer, which is now said to become the number one killer uh, in the West, in the developed countries, not the Western, but the, the developed countries. It's, over, it's actually about to overtake heart disease. I think in some countries it's already done it. So the cortisol to DHA ratio turns out to be the best predictor you have. And it just, it just so happens to be the ratio of catabolic versus the major anti-catabolic hormone. And it's a unisex ratio too, because we produce about the same amounts of DHA, both males and females, when we're, uh, the, regardless of the age. If you look at the range for DHEA on, on the blood labs, on the tests, they're the same for males and females. Uh, there's also the, for males, you can have like a more gender specific ratio. You can have a cortisol to testosterone for males. Well, or cortisol. What do, you, what do you think is the optimal yeah. range for DHA? 
so basically, I, I would look at the ratio actually, and I think the the ratio should not be over 0.3. In other words, should be heavily in favor yeah, of yeah. DHEA. Cortisol to DHEA should be no higher yeah, than and 0.3. That would be the morning and cortisol. Fast. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What is the highest? First thing in the morning. Yeah, when it's the highest. Um, and then if you want to check it, I mean, some, some people have the inverted uh, the, the inverted pattern, which is not a, by itself is not a good sign. A lot of people with depression and, you know, a bunch of different mood disorders have low cortisol in the morning, but, you know, high in the afternoon when it should be the exact opposite. But, and it just so happens that if you use DHEA as a supplement, uh, several human studies demonstrated that taking more than 15 milligrams daily start to increase biomarkers of estrogen, specifically estrone or estrone sulfate. Anything less than that, which is a happens to be a physiological dose it doesn't really cause that much of a problem but i would still take it with progesterone because blood levels are not always indicative yeah, yeah. So of the other levels. concern is that it tends to increase prolactin too because that's an indirect yes. marker for estrogen so for estrogen and for serotonin yeah, as well so any, anything if you take dhea and your estrogen levels don't change but prolactin jumps you're taking yeah, too much absolutely so in fact, I've concluded that it's not really wise for most people to check their estrogen levels. All they have to do is take set, measure prolactin, which is easier. It's just one thing. You don't have to measure three different estrogens, and that, even then, that's still not you're catching all the estrogens. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the only one that actually is, which is kind of reliable, which is estrone sulfate. I don't know. I know of no doctor that that, that, that is that is capable of ordering. The labs have it, but I've asked my doctor and several others. They're saying, yeah. Used to be a biomarker for breast cancer back in the seventies. I said, "So what? What changed? It's still a biomarker. I mean, nothing's changed physiologically since then. For some reason, they dropped it, and and now the labs have it on their menu, but it's very difficult to order it. Uh, I I don't think it has a code which the doctor can actually put into the system and say, "I want this test." The doctor has to call in the lab, like corporal lab or uh, uh, lab corporal request, and say, "I want this specific test." Otherwise, it's not capable of ordering. But yeah, you're right. So aside from that, since this test is almost not available. The, the second best thing you can do, or actually even better, better is prolactin, prolactin yeah. because prolactin will also give you an, 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 a basic uh, surrogate measure of extracellular serotonin. And as we discussed previously, uh, the, the higher extracellular levels of serotonin are not good. Yeah, it's uh, inter interesting. We're told. going to talk about CO2 next, as I mentioned earlier. And if you have a high, really high prolactin, it's indicative of a microadenoma in the pituitary gland. Uh, and they, And I know someone, a really astute natural medicine clinician who had that and actually had surgery to remove it. And so it's, it's, it's a certain, and I've only seen one of my, was it one? Was it? No, it was a different, it was, it wasn't a prolactin. It was, it was another, it was a, actually a tumor in the pituitary for Cushing's. I think it was Cushing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will say prolactin don't give you a drug, but for Cushing it's yeah, very yeah. difficult but because they, uh, but, but they usually have to take a, it out. A, a significant mass there than you have you know, then they yeah. remove it. But anyway, the, the reason I'm saying that is that one of the solutions for that to actually lower that would be carbon dioxide. Yeah, exactly. Carbon dioxide or anything, anything dopaminergic, which is what you, these drugs to lower prolactin are, they give you dopamine agonists, but a much easier way and much more probably healthier way would be to, to, to uh, increase carbon dioxide yeah. production. Is Take DHA a sulfate or DHES, as it's sometimes referred to, sufficient to, to measure? You don't need to measure both, do you? Uh, you, you don't need to measure both. So, so the DHA sulfate is a primer, is the best biomarker of adrenal yeah. health. So the DHA is the free version, which is basically what the, what the cells use to convert it to down, downstream mm -hmm. steroids. But it's the DHA sulfate levels that tell you how well the adrenal glands are working. You can have very low DHA sulfate levels, but normal levels of DHA, which the basically the, the, the body increases the, um, 
the, the, the activity of the sulfatase enzymes to cleave off the sulfate group and create a free DHA because it needs it. So you, ideally, you would measure both. But if you want to just measure your adrenal health, DHA sulfate by itself is sufficient. Uh, the Good. So the, well, I want to insert here a warning, a really important, it's almost a black box warning, that you cannot take these drugs orally. You cannot take these drugs orally in a powder form. You, and you, you taught me this, and I didn't, was not aware of it. They have to be dissolved in some long-chain fat. What the mm-hmm. heck does that mean? It mean and that, now, this is all of them except for one of the four that I named, which is progesterone, which we'll talk about in a moment because it's just, there's a derivative of that that makes it better. But the, the thyroid, the DHA, and pregnenolone, you cannot swallow orally because it's going to be metabolized in the liver. So you want to encase it in fat, essentially form an liposome, and it goes in, yep. it's absorbed into the uh, uh, chylomicrons, and it bypasses liver metabolism. So that you'll get that, that will work. And how do you do that? The simplest way is ghee. Ghee, olive oil. Even good olive oils <laughs> yeah. have 20% LA. <laughs> you know? yep. Yeah, that's so true. I, 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 have you ever measured your LA intake? I measure meat acid in blood. Oh. Uh, so, which is an indication for, for essential fatty acid deficiency. You can you can get a blood test and basically can tell you how close you are. I'm always at the bottom ten percent of the range. And that's uh, com- that's, that's a commercially yeah. available test, like yeah, yeah, meat you, test, you, yeah, meat basically, acid. yeah, meat acid. It's the, the it's the standard test for essential fatty acid deficiency. Yeah, okay, and, and that okay, that, yeah, that does that does get low. Okay, but but otherwise, it, a marker that you can use to facilitate is to do an analysis of your diet with a, a, a nutrient. Oh sure, yeah, oh, like, uh, like a cr- chronometer. Yeah. I think it's like a yeah. yeah so I've yeah. gotten mine down to three grams, three grams a day, which is pretty low. It's 1.3% of total calories. So anything under 2% is considered ancestral levels. And the average person has 12 to 13% and some are 20%. And I think the studies show that anything over four or five grams is when you start getting into carcinogenic territory. So you need to drop below that. Four or 5% of total, it's close. Yeah, for, uh, I understand it's like four percent of total day, daily calories. So it's dependent on what how much food you're eating. So it could it depend same with the numbers. It could be four or five grams, but you, normally you don't want it to have anything more than five grams. I would say that that there's less than ninety nine point nine percent of people who are doing that, which is sad because that's a big big. Actually, that is the the uh, quality that Ray Pete had that convinced me that he was onto something because that's because that, I dismissed him for all that time until I understood linoleic acid. Then I realized he was the first guy explaining it and I should listen to him and I should have listened to him earlier. <laughs> I just found a study showing that linoleic acid binds directly the estrogen receptors and acts like a full estrogen, a hundred percent. So if you're eating linoleic acid, it's not just a simply substance that promotes the effects of estrogen, which is what Dr. Pete used to say. We now have evidence that it's a direct estrogen. Even if you produce none, eat enough linoleic acid. And, and I don't, there. you would appreciate this. Most people wouldn't, but because you love molecular biology like I do, they actually have a similar mechanism of action. The, the concentration of calcium outside the cell, extracellular calcium, is mm-hmm. 50,000 times higher than inside the cell. And I know this because I was studying EMFs and I actually wrote a book on it. And the mechanism of action of its EMFs and estrogen and linoleic acid are the same at, at the molecular level. They 
uh, with with uh, EMFs, they activate a voltage-gated calcium channel receptor in the cell, and that causes yep. the calcium to enter. But yep. I, I don't think that linoleic acid and estrogen work on the calcium receptor. They might, and you you might know. But essentially, they allow the same thing. They increase the influx of calcium into the cell intracellularly, and it increases what this does is increases superoxide and increases nitric oxide, which combine nearly instantaneously in like a billionth of a second to form peroxynitrite, which lasts. Mm -hmm. Now, hydroxy for radicals is dangerous, but it, it lasts a billionth of a second. Peroxynitrate is almost as damaging, but it lasts for 10 seconds, 10 billion times longer than hydroxyl. So in many ways, it's far more dangerous than hydroxyl radical. And that's what happens when you take linoleic acid or estrogen or EMF. Or and EMF. I imagine all this, exactly. Or EMF, or all these people taking arginine or citrulline as a supplement, which raises nitric oxide. Yeah, a lot of people right? are. And then the unwise yeah. one. Yeah. So I, were you aware of that mechanism? That they, that actually, Ray, uh, Ray discussed it. That's how I learned about it, that it had the same in one of his uh, uh, papers that he wrote. I knew that there were that there were uh, uh, cellular excitotoxicants, and anything that excites the cell and causes uh, death from from hyperexcitability has to do with calcium. Ultimately, all cellular death pathways lead to calcium overaccumulation, and that's what really causes the cell death. And um, so, yeah, so if they're if uh, if both estrogen and linoleic acid are cellular excit excitotoxicants, then they have to do, then they have to increase intracellular calcium. Yeah, somehow. and that doesn't mean you stop drinking milk. That, that doesn't work that way. No, <laughs> milk can. In fact, it's the opposite. The cal they call the calcium paradox, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So, so like, but we don't want you drinking regular homogenized pasteurized milk if if you're allergic to it. That's not good. So not everyone can tolerate. So you have to be careful. But uh, so continue on and elaborate on the fatty acid, which I kind of diverted a little bit from. And 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 this is a recent point that I just learned this in the last few days. And I thought, and I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but I mentioned that all of those hormones, including thyroid hormone, most I don't know if you. Uh, understand that it actually needs to be integrated into liposome two to get ma maximum uh, absorbability. Yeah, anything you you ingest that is not that does not form a chylomicron and does not go through the lymphatic mm -hmm. system, uh, which means most of the foods that you ingest are going to go through the portal vein system, end up in the liver, and then the liver decides what to do, how much to actually keep, how much to convert it to something else, and how much to excrete. To which, in the case of steroids, means usually glucuronidation and sulfation. Uh, so if you're taking basically any kind of a steroid uh, uh, and it goes through the first pass metabolism, which is through the portal vein system, uh, studies show that you're basically getting a bioavailability of less than 10%. In other words, 90% the liver will either sequester and either keep itself or excrete. And the studies that have looked at urinary patterns uh, after taking steroids show that most of it actually gets excreted. So, which means that steroids being lipids, if we want them to avoid the first pass metabolism, we need to take them with fatty acids, which are also known to avoid the first pass metabolism and absorb mostly through the lymphatic system. And those are fatty acids with a chain length of uh, 14, I think, is the, is the borderline. Anything less than 14 goes mostly through the liver. Anything less than, uh, anything higher than 14, especially over 16, in other words, palmitic mm -hmm. and st steric acid are great for going through the lymphatic system because when you ingest them, uh, they form, they combine with bile acids and form something called chy chylomicrons. And those molecules basically diffuse through the lymphatic system, get into the lymphatic system and then travel around. And then I think the end point is through the thoracic, something called the thoracic mm -hmm. duct. 
they get dumped into the systemic right. circulation, which is what you really want. It kind of mimics uh, an injection of the steroid versus, you know, uh, what you get with the, by eating it going through the liver. So you want to avoid first-pass metabolism. So, excuse me for and, a moment. Let me interrupt you for uh, a fine minor tweak in that. It's not just – you're absolutely correct. That means if it's under 14 carbs, it doesn't work well. That means it eliminates coconut oil. You do not want to use coconut oil to dissolve this because it, yeah. it's yeah. usually it tops out at 12. But that also means yep. you don't want to use an unsaturated fat uh, or polyunsaturated Definitely. fat. So uh, monos are saturated fat are what you want to do, but you don't use fish oil to dissolve your hormones. Yep. Or peanut oil, which yeah. unfortunately that company Little, that I sent you the developing the testosterone yeah. drug. Oh, yeah. There there it's a it's a it's a testosterone ester, which is fine. It's a testosterone undecanoin, mm -hmm. I think. But they're also mixing it with peanut oil. In, in this, creating this emulsion and then putting it into gel caps and then you're ingesting with peanut oil. Um, and by the way, uh, the, because the peanut oil is very high in linoleic acid, it, linoleic acid is known actually to block the, the, the activity of testosterone at the receptor level. Um, so you're going to get like, so it's like ingesting an, an androgen and an anti-androgen in the same capsule which kind of defeats the purpose, not to mention its inflammatory effects. So yes, so uh, strictly, um, you know, uh, uh, saturated fats or worst case, if you can get purified uh, oleic acid, which is the main component of olive oil. Uh, there's another oil which I've recently become interested in. It's called Moringa oh, oil. Yeah. Seems to have very low levels of PUFA, like uh, less than 1%. <laughs> yeah, L less than 1% of PUFA, almost identical to olive oil minus the PUFA. So it's like the profile, if you look at the fatty acids, it's about 80%, I think, oleic acid and the rest are saturated yeah. fats. So, so you can probably try to do that. Subtropics and tropics, for sure. Yeah, I think India, like they, they basically, they, they export a, a yeah. large amount of Moringa oil and it's a, it's got a, a bunch of different phenolic compounds in it. So it's similar to unfiltered olive oil in terms of its health mm -hmm. effects, which all unfiltered olive oil has. There's a very interesting study that... Uh, Taking 30 grams of unfiltered olive oil, real mm -hmm. olive oil, can actually cure H. pylori infection better than antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, for about two weeks. So moringa oil has some, some of the same phenolics. So if you're interested in, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting the better version of olive oil, you can try moringa, assuming it's not adulterated, which uh, of course is no guarantee these yeah. days. But yes, yeah, so long chain saturated or uh, worst, uh, worst case monounsaturated fats, definitely not. Polyunsaturated yeah, yeah, that, do you know, not make that mistake. Storage. That's what's causing most of the health problems. So, uh, let's pivot to progesterone, which is a special case, like the other three. Uh, you could get some absorption, but the better way to do it is is the, the the method that Pete actually got a patent on. I don't know when the patent was. He got his he got his PhD in estrogen in 1972, and I, I suspect it was late 70s or early 80s that he figured out the patent. But I, the patent for this is long expired. But it's essentially dissolving progesterone in vitamin E. And there's only mm -hmm. one company, or there's two companies that do that, Progest E, which I don't like. Kinogen. Kinogen is the company. Yeah, I don't like Progest that. E. I do not recommend that company at all. And I'll tell you why. And I'm, I confirm that this is accurate. You can't measure the dose. It, it, the, the company is just, they made a terrible choice. And it's too viscous. And when you try to squeeze one drop, you might be squeezing 10 or 15. It just comes out as a stream. It's, it doesn't, it's not a drop. It's, it's impossible to titrate that dose. So don't use that. If you're using ProGest finish what you have now and go get to something like either what I recommend, uh, the two, which is from Health Natura, who has a lot of repeat stuff with uh, 
progest simply progesterone they have, or you can do it yourself. You know how you can do it yourself? You can buy USP, which is 99.9% .9 pure natural progesterone powder. It's not easy to find, but you can get it. And, and, uh, it's, it's, that's actually the least expensive because you can buy like a year's worth for $40 and you dissolve it in vitamin E. <laughs> so, vitamin yeah, e. so why, yep. why don't you yep. expand on that? Because I'm sure you're going to have a lot of insights I, I skipped over. So it's a lipophilic molecule, uh, similar. If you look at the, I think it's got like 22 carbons or, or, or you know, maybe I didn't, more. I didn't realize yeah. it's that high. Yeah. So it's basically, it's similar to these lipids that we're, that we're recommending, but the bond that, that uh, progesterone, the ionic bond that it forms with vitamin E is much stronger than the one it forms with regular fats. So if you, even when you take progesterone with regular fats in the emulsion, chances are that basically once you ingest it, even if it goes through the, uh, through a chylomicron system, it gets dumped into the bloodstream, very quickly platelets and other, and other cells are going to basically be able to cleave that bond and you're going to have free progesterone floating around. And for free progesterone in the blood, the half-life is about 45 mm -hmm. minutes. So you're going to get a, let's say a brief effect of progesterone and you want a longer term mm -hmm. effect. And it turns out that when you dissolve it in vitamin E, it stays dissolved in the vitamin E. The doesn't get, doesn't get uh, extracted out of the vitamin E somehow. So it stays in the vitamin E, which means that it's half-life in the blood is the same as the half-life of vitamin E, which is 48 hours. Wow, I did not so know that. That's it, the reason yeah. why. So yeah. 48 hours versus 45 minutes. Exactly. Wow ridiculous difference and so which means you have to, you can take it only only couple every couple of days depending on the reason you're taking it um and the other good reason is that basically vitamin e um you know it, it's capable of being of binding to the red blood cells and then it gets carried throughout the tissues and distributed exactly where it's needed recent study i found out that basically showed that when you dissolve a substance in vitamin e specifically targets the sites of inflammation with the highest inflammation and this company founded by accident, they were doing um, uh, experiments trying to deliver drugs to, into the brain and specifically to the area of the brain that was damaged by a stroke. So they were testing different chemicals, different solvents, right? And they have to cross the blood-brain barrier. And some of them did cross the blood-brain barrier, but they affected the entire brain. So they had to use a much higher concentration, which is in pharmacology is usually not good. You want the lowest possible concentration exerting the strongest effect. And then they tried vitamin E. And then when they tried vitamin E, they managed to get that drug that was protecting against uh, that was uh, reversing the damage from the stroke specifically to that area and were able to use a concentration about a hundred times lower than what they were able to use with the other solvents and they they opined they haven't tested it yet that the same thing happens throughout the body as well so ideally the, when you take progesterone you want it to go to the areas that need it the most which usually means areas of high estrogen which automatically means high inflammation high nitric oxide or high serotonin and it looks like dissolving in vitamin E will specifically target those areas first. It will, it will get to the others as well, but it will first it will take care of the problem where, where it's the most uh, urgent. So the devil's in the details. Uh, but before I go into that, I want to, while I'm remembering, uh, mention that we are actually developing the best progesterone delivery system in the world because it's going to have not only vitamin E, but it's not going to be a dropper. It's going to be in a liposome, a caps liposomic capsule that you swallow. With vitamin E. Awesome. It's like the ultimate, awesome. the ultimate delivery system. So we'll hopefully have that out in three to six months. But but the vitamin E is is some is a supplement that I believe almost every human needs to take, even babies. And I mean it's really hard the, the, the primary you say, well, let's get it from Whole Foods. Well, that's a good idea, but guess what the highest 
concentrations of vitamin E is in foods. It's in seed oils or seeds or nuts. I mean, it, yeah. it's really hard yeah. to get vitamin E. I mean, you can get it in meat, but you know, I, because so every, the, the other benefit aside from just progesterone is that it's going to be anti-lipolytic and help you protect oxidative damage from the linoleic acid that's in your tissues. It, it, it has to come out and it's going to take seven years for it to come out completely, even once you started a low linoleic acid diet. So vitamin E is essential. Everyone needs vitamin E, but, but the devil's in the details and you've got to take a specific type of vitamin E. So I want you to discuss that. So vitamin E, its effects in the earlier, uh, like the first half of the 20th century, were no, not known as an antioxidant. It was known as an anti-estrogenic chemical, as an anti-inflammatory chemical, and specifically as an anti-clotting factor that was protective against the clotting effects of estrogen. So it was really known as like kind of like the natural uh, over-the-counter anti-estrogenic molecule that you can get. Um, but And then uh, I think around the, the 1950s is when the rate of living theory came out. And, and that, theory, that theory is based on the fact that if you have high metabolism, you're going to have high reactive oxygen species, something which we've debunked. And actually, even the Wikipedia page says that if you have high metabolism, it's actually low reactive oxygen species. But long story short, they did some experiments showed that vitamin E is an effective antioxidant. So they said, oh, well, you know, maybe because it extends lifespan in animals, and now we think that a rate of living rate of living theory is what causes aging. Maybe that's how vitamin E works, and that's 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 the idea that was pushed for the next fifty years. So vitamin E became known almost exclusively as an antioxidant. And then big pharma company got involved. Big pharma companies got involved and started producing synthetic mm. versions of vitamin E, specifically the uh, the esters such as tocopheryl acetate, tocopheryl palmitate. Um, they also hit, they had racemic versions, the dextro and the level uh, kind. Only the dextro uh, isomer of the tocopherols is active. Um, so if you go to the any kind of a grocery store and buy the cheapest version of vitamin E possible, actually it doesn't have to be the cheapest, but if you reach for a random vitamin E product, chances are that it's going to have not only a mix of a racemic mix of DNL isomers, but also it's going to be an ester. So it, most most often the the uh, acetate. And uh, multiple studies have demonstrated that uh, uh, acetate has only about 50% of the of the activity of the real of the dextro version. I'm sorry, of the non-esterified. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at that, also the of the DNL racemic mix, only half of that Getting is active. So half of half equals yeah, a quarter. Yeah. So you're going to be getting only a quarter of the real vitamin E that you actually that your body needs. And in addition to that, uh, there are several studies that show that have shown that the the, the uh, level isomer is capable of displacing the dextro isomer from tissues, and you may get into a situation where you know you're taking a lot of vitamin E, but you're excreting the dextro one, and you're getting accumulated the level one, which is inactive and actually. It does not prevent from many of these damages that the PUFA does. So you should not be taking anything that has the DL in the name, and it should be listed and, on the and, label. And, and it shouldn't have acetate. Yeah. It you should not have acetate. So it should be non-esterified dextro mix of the dext of the dextro isomers of the four isomers, which are alpha, beta, gamma, yeah. and yeah. delta. Um, and then you, you, you know, even those on the market, you can basically you can get some good products, but basically make sure that uh, it doesn't does not smell like fish oil. Uh, if any smell of of of, of, of like that or of rancidity demonstrates that there there is some residual um, polyunsaturated fats there, and you, you do not want to take that, even though vitamin is supposed to protect from the, yeah, from yeah. the negative side effects. So you want mixed you want mixed non-esterified D level to uh, D isomer to cover. Yeah, and to illustrate that. 
uh, because I've done, I'm, I'm actually creating a course, a masterclass with a variety of, the, the, it's condensing the, 50, the 40 years I've been studying this stuff into the most important topics. And I, I have a whole module on this in the linoleic acid topic. And in, and I, I forget the specifics, but there's a really, a, I think it was a large Japanese study that looked at the difference between whole, whole food vitamin E that was from, they, they wasn't a supplement. It was, it was, they quantitated some way the level of vitamin E that we're getting from the food and they compared it to the synthetic versions. And it was for women with lung cancer. It, it was a massive difference. The, 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 the synthetic vitamin E radically increased the lung cancers radically increase them where the natural vitamin E reduced it. So you, it, it, you are far, far, far better off not taking vitamin E that fits the characteristics that Georgie just described than if then, then taking it at all. And it, so you will got to take the right one. And then there's also a quantity issue that you didn't mention, but it's like a hundred units, hundred milligrams is like what you don't need more. So the last thing you want is like DL, alpha tocopherol acetate, you know, that's the worst. It's like 400 <laughs> units or a thousand units, even better, right? No, that, that stuff will kill you prematurely. So you really want a high quality one. There's a number of companies that make it. We happen to make one too. Uh, and you can, you don't have to buy ours. You can just look at our site and look at the product label and look at that and make sure, make sure that the, the brand you're using replicates that, that, that level. Cause we got all the isomers, uh, and the, the, no, only the D isomer, the uh, different species, alpha, uh, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. Uh, and you want the tocotrienols in there too. And, and it's a smaller dose, smaller dose, not 100 yep. milligrams, like 50 milligrams. Collect There's a study that actually demonstrated how much you need. It depends on your intake of linoleic mm -hmm. acid. So two milligrams per gram of linoleic acid is what, what you know, what your... Uh, uh, optimal intake should be. So since a lot of people eat, let's say, 50 grams of linoleic acid day, then you better be taking about 100 milligrams of, of the mixed tocopherols and, and tocopherols. I, I would argue that it's probably more uh, because it, it also serves very, I didn't realize it had a 40-hour half-life. So it's, it's its own time-release capsule, essentially. But it has a very powerful antilipolytic action, which is why it's so useful. Yeah. In, in addition to preventing oxidation of these fats, it kind of keeps it in the adipose tissue, this the fat cells, and from and and hopefully being released so it goes to the liver and you can urinate it out. Right. And the, the fatty cells can metabolize it themselves through something called the peroxisomes. I did not know that. Uh, Please expand on yeah. that. Well, I mean, there's there's this, these organelles that are in the in the in the cell that are called the peroxisomes mm -hmm. that are outside of the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. They can metabolize fats. Uh, and there's some drugs on the market. Uh, the, the interest has kind of waned uh, recently because they didn't pan out as, as uh, they, they were developed as a treatment for diabetes. And the treatment for diabetes, to this day, the theory is that we want to suppress oxidation of glucose. We want to increase the oxidation mm -hmm. of fats. And they developed these drugs called the peroxisome activators. And they're like a peroxisome alpha, beta, gamma, and, and delta, just like the tocopherols. And then these peroxisome organelles can actually process fats extra mitochondrially without the involvement of the mitochondria. And I think that's the preferred way in addition to the through the excretion through the liver, which is how, how you know, you should be helpfully processing the PUFA. Now, but even the peroxisome metabolism of fats, even that is subject to the peroxidation. Um, so you still yeah, need the vitamin E. Sure. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So even though you're not, so the mitochondria is okay, it's protected because the, the fats are not oxidized there. Even in the peroxisomes, they can cause damage, especially to the to the cellular membrane. And because it's also composed of lipids, right? Uh, so you do need the vitamin E just for that, just for structural stability of the yeah, cell. Yeah, so I did not realize that peroxisomal deactivation in the adipose cell. So that's a powerful reason because I, I said, well, I know it's antilipolytic and that's good. I, I, but I, I thought I didn't understand that it, that it's going to be metabolized in the fat cell because I thought at some point it would come out and your body would take care of it more effectively. But if you can keep it in the fat cell as long as possible, and that's what vitamin E does. It keeps that damaging fatty acid in your fat cell so that your fat cell can get rid of it and not yep, leak exactly. out into your cells, embed into your its membranes in your body, primarily your inner mitochondrial membrane, and screw up your ability to, to produce cellular energy. Because and, and the, fat cells, the fat cells are probably the only type that, that actually is kind of okay by uh, doing okay by metabolizing fat. Anything else, especially pancreas, liver, brain, gonadal cells, they're very, uh, they're very uh, vulnerable uh, to oversupply of fat. It can actually cause damage. A uh, recent study came out showed that that, um, that the damage, the kidney damage seen in type two diabetes and even type one diabetes, the damage to the beta cells of the pancreas is driven primarily by oversupply of fat and specifically polyunsaturated mm-hmm. fats. So, so it's the, so you don't want the puffer to come out, right? Let it stay there, and those cells over time will will help together with the liver to get rid of it. Um, but even even when it's sitting there stored. You, you do not want it peroxidized, and that's really what the vitamin E will help to as well. All right, so let's tie up this loose ends and go on. I want to go on to vitamin K2 and CoQ10 as quinones that will, could I think, should serve as a wonderful alternative to methylene blue, which I have some concerns I want to discuss with you. But, but let's finish up the hormones and by just discussing the dose. So let's start on the top bottom. The most important one is progesterone. I'll tell you what I think, and then you refine my my views on it. So I think the dose, actually, you know, an interesting dose that Michael Platt, I'm sure you're aware of, is a physician, sort of a contemporary of John Lee, who's long since passed, and is a big proponent of of progesterone. Uh, And his his fix on it is for adrenaline excess. So so he primarily uses, he thinks we have a, 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 a epidemic of adrenal excess. And I suspect to a certain extent, he's correct. But but he, like John Lee, and like almost everyone else who is using bioidentical progesterone, uh, and just as an aside, so not, we're not going to go into it now because we don't have time. We're going to discuss two more topics. But there is never, in my mind, never, 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 never an excuse or a reason to use bioidentical estrogen. You do not want it. It's toxic. It's dangerous. It's going to cause problems. And I know a lot of people are going to be angry with me for saying it, but that's what you and I believe. So I'm assuming you believe that, right? Never. Oh, not only that, I can send you. There was a, I don't know if you saw that the debunking that the doctor did that of the uh, podcast you and I did on no, estrogen. I... Uh, Oh, you did not? I'll send you. There's a doctor who is like, I think a gynecologist uh-huh. said, oh, these two, they, they uh, <laughs> uh, poo-pooed all over estrogen. And here are my counter arguments. And she said, yeah, the Women's Health Initiative studies demonstrated these terrible effects. But then we reanalyzed the data, which is a euphemism for we threw out the things we didn't yeah, like. Yeah. <laughs> and then we found these specific subgroups where if you change the dosage, estrogen will be okay. And I responded to that with a slew of other studies showing that specifically, she basically the main point was that estrogen is not carcinogenic. And I said, really? Look, here is a list of 40 cancers. Every single one of them, 
multiple studies showing that estrogen can both cause it de novo and if it's already there it promotes its yeah. growth so there's really no such thing as a non-endocrine cancer all of them are res- respond to hormones and estrogen is a primary yeah. growth factor yeah, in and all. i'll put a link to our previous podcast that we did discuss that where we went deep and had a lot more time to do it so no excuse for ever taking bioidentical estrogen, but you want bioidentical progesterone, and that's not hard to do. You just you don't want the synthetic. And synthetic progesterone sometimes is referred to as progesterone, but more accurately it's called progestin. That is dangerous. That's bad. It's almost as bad as estrogen. So you don't want that. So, but most of the people who are encouraging, recommending, advising people to take natural progesterone, I would say it's over, it's probably over 99% people use it they use it transdermally and that is not what you want to do so i'll, I'll let you talk we, we actually talked about it you want to use the progesterone but if you want to mention anything the dangers of using it transdermally we'll talk about it but then i want to talk about the dose and then we'll go to the others so the dose i'm recommending uh and a dose for a pre for a mental pre-menopausal woman in other words a woman who's still having her menses her cycles you have to be careful and only use it uh not the entire month and i forget the specific timing of it uh but you, do, you can definitely break up your cycle if you use the wrong time. So otherwise you can use it every day. And it's like 25 to 50 milligrams. I kind of like the air on the mm-hmm. high side, like 50 milligrams, because there doesn't seem to be any downside. There's like no, there's no toxicity. It does like other hormones like testosterone. And notice we did, I did not recommend taking testosterone, especially for men. I do not recommend it at all. It, it's, you don't need to do it. And I think it's potentially dangerous. You just need to get those four we mentioned. Uh, so. But unlike testosterone supplementation that many men are on, uh, it doesn't have negative feedback. So you can take it to the wazoo and it will, in fact, I think it enhances progesterone production when you take it, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So there, you don't have to be concerned about that. And there doesn't appear to be any toxicity. And the women who are pregnant, man, this goes through the roof. I, I, I don't know how many orders of magnitude higher it is during pregnancy than it is in non-pregnancy. But it, it, the, the point being is that the human body can tolerate very high levels of this without side effects. In the third trimester, women produce about 600 milligrams okay, daily. Okay, so it, it's, it's, it's at least one order, closer to two orders of magnitude. Yeah, yep. that's a lot. So if you're using it transdermally because the skin has a very high expression of something called the 5-alpha reductase mm-hmm. enzyme, um, you, a significant portion, if not the majority of the progesterone you're taking, will be converted irreversibly. It cannot be; re- go, it cannot go back to progesterone into something called 5-alpha dihydroprogesterone, and then that gets converted ultimately to something called allopregnanolone. Now, allopregnanolone is, it has some very good effects. Recently, it was approved by the FDA as a treatment for for postpartum depression as an as an infusion. Good, and now the company. <laughs> Good sleeping pill too. Yeah, very, very potent GABA agonist, uh, strong anti-seizure effects because of that. And the company that, uh, one company that, that uh, I think it's the same that's developing the testosterone oral version said, oh, maybe we can do allopregnanolone in our peanut butter formulation for oral use. And they are doing that actually right now to treat post-traumatic stress disorder in mostly in the military mm-hmm. veterans. Um, it does seem to have that effect. So, but if you're, getting, if you're using it transdermally, out of the progesterone, you're mostly getting the allopregnanolone. Um, if you're taking it orally in the, with the proper oils, or even better with vitamin E as, as the solvent, you'll be getting a significant portion non-metabolized. And then in a non-metabolized version, proge- pro- progesterone has some very potent pro-thyroid effect. It's a thermogenic 
uh, steroid as well. It, it, it induces uncoupling. So you, you'll be producing more heat, which is one of the uh, effects of taking T3. Not as potent as T3, but it will raise your metabolic rate by about 10%. Um, and and milligram for, per milligram, it's more potent than caffeine. Caffeine can do about the same, but caffeine can cause jitters. A lot of people are intolerant to it, right? Uh, some people think they're developing, um, you know, uh, uh, dependence on it. I don't think it's physically dependent, but uh, it could be psychologically. Uh, so with progesterone, you can achieve, achieve the same things, but without the, the jitteriness. In fact, it may make you sleepy because progesterone itself is a GABA agonist and was used as one of the treatments for... Um, Eclampsia and preeclampsia, some of the symptoms includes, include seizures of those conditions. So that was a treatment back in like the, you know, mid to like late 20th century before the synthetic progestins got involved. So you do want it orally. You, you want it in the oils to avoid the liver. And in that case, then you're going to get the, the thermogenic effect, the proteroid effect. It will actually stimulate, it will increase the synthesis of some of the enzymes that are actually involved in producing progesterone. The key one is the side chain cleavage, which increases conversion of, of cholesterol to pregnenolone, and then something called 3-beta three beta, three hydroxysteroid hydrogenase, which converts pregnenolone to progesterone. So by taking progesterone, you'll, you'll increase the machinery in your cells to, to create even more progesterone. And that positive feedback seems to be present also for pregnenolone and DHEA, but it's also unfortunately present for the uh, the, the not-so-good steroids, such as especially estrogen and cortisol. Um, I've talked to many doctors, and if you talk to them about cortisol, they'll say, no, cortisol has a strong negative feedback mechanism. That's why you never see this regulation of cortisol unless the person has cushion disease. That may be true centrally. However, it turns out that peripherally, cortisol is a potent inducer of its own enzyme that produces cortisol, which is 11-beta HSD-1. So by taking cortisol, you're becoming, you know, you're becoming more cortisol prone. And the same thing happens with the good hormones. Taking more pregnenolone or more progesterone or DHA with the limits, you actually helps your body produce even more of those. Uh, what else does it do? Uh, progesterone in its unmetabolized form is the aromatase yes. inhibitor, as yes. we mentioned. And it's also the antagonist at the, both the estrogen receptors alpha and beta, right? And not many people know, because the research on that seemed to have stopped around the early 80s, that progesterone has the same affinity of cortisol for the glucocorticoid receptor, except that progesterone acts there as an antagonist. It's a, it's a cortisol so, antagonist. That's like the, yes. the cat's meow. And it, compare that yeah. to adrenaline too, because I mean... It, Oh yes. So basically, the uh, so the release of adrenaline is driven largely by by a, a two family of receptors, the alpha and the beta adrenal mm -hmm. receptors. And some of the some of the uh, I think the one of the first drugs for blood pressure the was a beta blocker, mm -hmm. right? Pro, yeah, I think sure. propranolol. Yeah, yeah, propranolol. Yeah. yeah. In the wrong. So that doctor that says that we have a adrenaline excess, he's right, but it's not just adrenaline excess. We have an HPA. Uh, overactivity syndrome, like in the developed countries, which means both cortisol and adrenaline. So we already know that that progesterone can protect against the cortisol excess. Oh, by the way, progesterone also inhibits the enzyme 11 beta HSD1, which synthesizes cortisol, while simultaneously increasing the activity of 11 beta HSD2, which deactivates cortisol. So it's really it will block cortisol. Cortisol is effective. Cortisol is already there, but it also reduce your ability to produce cortisol in excess. It does not put you into a cortisol deficiency such as Addison disease, which is what a which lot of people which are is concerned about. Almost everyone benefits from. That's why it's it's, yeah. it's almost universally beneficial to everyone, unless you're not you're really engaged in unhealthy behaviors. Then then it could be problematic. There's complications that can result. Yeah, we we all in a state after the age of thirty five. I think it's fair to say that we're all in a state of 
relative hypothyroidism, and especially relative excess of glucocorticoids and adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And they go hand in hand. So progesterone is, is, has been shown to increase the oxidation of adrenaline, and it's the, which, is, which, which deactivates it. Um, and also, I think it acts on the alpha-2 adrenal receptor as an agonist, which is the same mechanism of action of a drug called clonidine. And clonidine is used clinically to lower the release of adrenaline from the adrenal okay, glands. And uh, there are human studies demonstrating that if you uh, administer progesterone, even in its non-optimal form, such as just a powder uh, without the long-chain fatty acids uh, and, and definitely without the, the tocopherols, even in that, in that form, 100 to 200 milligrams orally, single dose, is sufficient to drop cortisol and adrenaline by about 60%, 6 zero. And as a side effect of that, the blood pressure also drop in both sexes. So we know that progesterone has a, a very potent anti-stress effect by, by acting specifically on the true sides of the stress system, which is the cortisol and the adrenaline one. Um, and one of the explanations is that I, I think progesterone has shown some ability to activate directly the alpha receptors, which are negative feedback. In other words, if you activate the alpha adrenal receptor, um, you basically send in the signal that there's too much adrenaline, so the body will produce less adrenaline, unless you have a very rare tumor, something called pheochromocytoma, mm -hmm. which overproduces uh, uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, I mean, in other words, adrenaline, noradrenaline, uh, and I think dopamine. But they're very rare. Yeah. They're like one in a hundred thousand. I've never seen one in my career. Most physicians haven't. I, oh. Yeah, they're extremely rare. Neuroendocrine tumors, unless you have that, progesterone is going to have an anti-adrenaline effect, uh, especially if your adrenaline is in excess. Okay. So let's... So it can be used as a over-the-counter blood pressure drug, um, you know, if the doctor approves. Yeah, well, it does. <laughs> it's like, interesting. We're going to talk about. I think we're going to switch to talk about CO two next, which is clearly one of the best interventions for lowering blood pressure, because uh, it's the primary vasodilator in your body. Uh, mm -hmm. So let's skip now to thyroid, which is basically there's two. Well, there's three types of supplementation. One could be the desiccated thyroid, which has T one, two, yep. three, and four. T3 and 4 are the most common, though, and, and they're administered uh, by prescription, typically as uh, Synthroid or Levothyroxine, uh, as T4, just T4. And that's not a good strategy. In fact, I, I forget Pete's position on this, but I, I believe it, he was primarily just recommending T3, which is what I use personally. I, I just don't think for most people T4 is going to be needed, that you can do it with T3. But you know, there's no danger to doing it. it Maybe may optimal depends on the person. So I definitely want your thoughts. And you know, we talk about the doses here too. Again, it should be this. Most people, I've never heard anyone, including you, discuss the need for taking thyroid in fat. I've heard it with the other ones, but not thyroid. That was so. That was new for me, and, and this is what I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, so the dosages, typically, I think. Well, I'm pretty confirmed. You, if you take T3, interestingly, they it's sold as a drug. A prescription drug, a cytomel it's called, but the, you can get other versions of it. And I think I make, I, I, you can compound it at a lower dose, but I think it's prescription. It's just 25 micrograms, which is way yeah, too yeah. high a dose. You don't really yeah, want to go over 10 micrograms uh, every three hours. It's just not a good strategy. It's just, and you can tell us why, but you don't want to do that. So you've got to be really, really careful of, about that. So I think with that said, why don't you guide us further? So the uh, thyroid gland produces about 100 micrograms in a healthy person, 100 micrograms of T3 over 24 oh, hours. Oh, I didn't period. know it was that high. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, but if you take anything more than 25 micrograms, or actually even that is a very high yeah. dose, uh, because it's, it has a, such a potent uh, thermogenic wow. effect, uh, and in higher doses can be catabolic, the body has developed these mechanisms called the deionidase enzymes, and they very quickly convert the excess T3 into something called T2 and even T1. Um, and both of these are much weaker uh, thyroid hormone receptor agonist than T3. So in other words, you're going to be wasting most of it. Um, and interestingly, the same type of enzymes, T3 deactivating, are highly overexpressed in cancer cells, and cancer cells just happen to be very, very hypometabolic, <laughs> as we've discussed previously. Um, so if you're taking, so the, the thyroid gland produces the T3 to T4 in a ratio of about 1 to 4 in favor of T4. Um, and then in the circ- once you get this gas release in the circulation, T4 is actually a prohormone. It itself by itself does not have a very high activity directly at, at the thyroid receptor is T3. So it circulates and about 80% of it in the liver in a healthy person should get converted to T3. And the other 20% can get converted to T3 peripherally. Or if the dosage of T4 is too high, the excess very quickly gets converted to something called reverse T3. Uh, and that's a very dangerous state because reverse T3 acts as a thyroid hormone antagonist. So if you're taking too much T4, which, uh, you know, it's the dosage is different for everybody. It depends on their, you know, state of health, their liver health. A lot of people have fatty liver disease, which means their liver health is not going to be optimal. And, and most doctors don't take these things into account. So if they prescribe you, let's say, 100 or 200 micrograms T4 daily, um, you better be praying to the gods that you believe in that this will go to the liver and get properly converted. Because if it doesn't, you know, and it gets converted to reverse T3, you'll end up in a more hypothyroid state than if you did not take the T4 uh, at all. Um, and uh, that actually was known, uh, in uh, I think, in, towards the middle of the 20th century, which is when the T3 and T4 got isolated. Mm-hmm. And that's why the therapy, the thyroid therapy, was always a combination of the two hormones, never, never T4 by mm-hmm. itself. That only became a thing in the mid-90s and to this day. Um, and then at the time, the cheapest way to get these was for, for, uh, from natural thyroid glands, specifically bovine or porcine, sometimes even from sheep, depending on what's, you know, what the, the animals, what the most popular animals in the area are. And you just get freeze-dried, pulverized, and then you basically like you get standardized that a grain will have about 38 to 40 micrograms of T4 and about 8 to 10 micrograms of T3. Um, and for most people... Uh, especially to the work of Dr. Broder Barnes, but for most people and other doctors who studied it too, uh, up to three grains was considered what was basically uh, was likely to produce a health uh, a healthy effect. Anything more than three grains usually means you have some 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 other problem that's either preventing the T3 from doing its work. You have impaired conversion of T4 into T3, which usually means liver disease, right? Uh, or you have like a, another metabolic condition such as diabetes or even cancer, uh, which results in increase the activation of your T3 and decrease conversion of the T4 into T3. So if you're taking thyroid, a T4, I think, is, is almost never a good option by itself unless the person is very young. But even then, if a person is hypothyroid, that by definition already means that the liver will be burdened because one of the primary functions of the liver is the detox mechanisms. And one of the primary things that the liver that detoxifies are polyunsaturated fats and, and estrogens. But the detoxification mechanisms themselves depend on thyroid mm-hmm. function. So hypothyroid means sluggish liver by definition. And in a person like that, so it means if you give a hypothyroid person a T4, you only, especially if the dosage is higher, you ask asking for trouble. 
some of that will get converted to reverse T3. And we've seen that on blood tests that, uh, that, that people have sent me that is that basically almost none of them improve on T4 only. Unfortunately, the doctors currently, the current protocol for treating hypothyroidism in most countries is tyroxine only, T4. And only they only prescribe T3 for something called uh, myxedemic coma, mm -hmm. which basically is severe, very severe, almost lethal side effect of, uh, of severe hypothyroidism. Uh, and only then they will consider T3. And I think even then it's by infusion only. They don't, they don't give it uh, orally. Uh, you, you can still buy the products, but if, you, if you're going to be taking thyroid, I think either the natural desiccated, which usually has the T4 to T3 in a 4 to 1 ratio, which is kind of like the natural one that we produce as well. Or if you're going to be taking in the synthetic versions, then, you know, uh, if, you take, if you have to take T4, um, you know, make sure that the dose is not over 100 micrograms. That's very commonly prescribed because then it would mean you have to take 25 micrograms of T3 to kind of match the physiologic ratio. But that dosage of T3 is too high. It's going to cause yeah. problems. So ideally, you're looking at something like uh, the SinoPlus product, which a tablet you can split into four. And I think you're getting about 30 micrograms of T4 and about what eight yeah, micrograms. Yeah, you really of T3. want to be under 10 if you can. So I, I got yeah. I, again. I want to reiterate that these are not magic bullets. Please understand that that you taking thyroid, even though you need it, is is a wise strategy. But you still need to address the fundamental reasons why your hormones stopped working well. So and that's what we discussed in our previous interviews, and it has a lot to do with the, your lifestyle, specifically the food that you're eating. So we're not going to go into that near, but just know that. So yes, go on the hormones, but at the same time, you want to address the foundational causes. So having said that, let's progress to the next hormone, which in the in the trio, so it's progesterone, thyroid, and then DHA. Yeah, which I think we, Sorry, I, I for think we DHA. talked about the doses, didn't we? Uh, yeah, for, for DHA, I think I mentioned yeah. the physiological dose. Basically, yeah. we're producing at most 50 milligrams daily. Uh, and if you take that, basically, it's it's probably good if you split it into several doses, smaller doses, just to avoid raising, you know, the giving the, the estrogen enzymes. Take it with so butter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> take it with butter and take it with progesterone. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. In order to do that. Actually, I put them together when I take it. No, I don't. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I actually, you know, I, I, I have to qualify that. I take my progesterone all at once. Especially since it's in the, vit the vitamin E, and I take it about an hour before I go to bed, and and, and I apply it. I, we didn't say this; you can swallow it, but I apply it on my gums. I mix the the, the progesterone and DHA together in a in a uh, in, in vitamin E in a three to one ratio. To me, that seems good, good to work the best. And it, it's a, it's a mood issue because the half life is forty eight hours. I mean, you know, it's yes, always, exactly. you've got it in your <laughs> tissue, so you don't. I mean, maybe the first day it's good to do that, or two days, but you know, eventually you get yeah. high high uh, tissue levels of it. Yep, yep. So you mentioned 30 to 50 milligrams of progesterone, which, by the way, happens to be the physiological dose that we produce when we're at the age of 11 and 12, both males yeah, and females. Oh, wow, I did not know that. Same thing for pregnenolone. Pregnenolone, 30 to 50 milligrams. If you look at the products on the market, a lot of them are selling 30 to 50 milligrams of the pregnenolone. Uh, but and you wonder, well, why why is this like consistency? And nobody can explain why. But if you look at the literature, somebody who actually started doing this, selling them long time ago, must have looked at the literature and said, this is the physiological dose. This is what you need for full replenishment, assuming you're producing nothing. Um, so, yeah, so so I think that's a good dose. But it's just as you said, for women in the luteal phase, when you when they actually already produce sufficient amount of progesterone, I think the progesterone dose should be lowered in that in that or uh, maybe stop. phase. Or do you think it should be? Or maybe stop off. Yeah, so in the luteal yeah, phase is yeah. the first day of the cycle to like the fifth or tenth. 
Yeah, something like okay. that. Yes. Well, I mean, it varies in the length depending on the specific person, but basically, like you, it's ten. I guess it's ten days after ovulation. Okay, so ten days. So one, the, yeah. one third of the month you're not taking yeah. it. Two thirds yeah, you are exactly. And then if you're not cycling at all, then you don't need. You can take it continuously. All right, yeah. so that's good. And thanks for all your efforts. And I can't tell you how many people really appreciate all you're doing. So thank you. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. It's spreading the knowledge. That's what yeah, it's all you, about. You're really, really good at that.